Hi, and welcome to the Defenseless Moments podcast. I'm Hunter Visser, and today I'm going to be speaking with Larry Wilson about Chapter 7 of his book, Defenseless Moments, titled The Neuroscience Behind the Critical Error Reduction Techniques. Now remember, if you haven't had a chance to read the article or the chapter in the book, go to the episode notes where you can find links to Amazon to purchase the book as well as the Paradigm Shift website where you can read this chapter or this article. And by doing so, it's going to make this conversation a whole lot more meaningful. Hey, Larry, thanks for joining us again. So as we mentioned, this chapter is about the neuroscience behind the certs. My question for you is, when did you start thinking about the neuroscience and the connection to the critical air reduction techniques? And why is it important? Well, um, it's, it, it's first of all, it's really important, Hunter. I mean, uh, you know, why, uh, why an article or, or a chapter for the book? But um, as I say, sort of right at the very beginning of the article or chapter, the, the critical error reduction techniques have been around now for 21 years. The, the neuroscience is more, is more recent, certainly in terms of the, if you will, the, the safety world, the safety community becoming uh, more aware of it, you know, much, much, much the last 10 years, for instance. So obviously the neuroscience didn't improve the critical error reduction techniques or the, the efficacy of the critical error reduction techniques. They were, they were already around for 10, 11 years before that. And we already had just tons uh, of empirical data in terms of, you know, literally thousands and thousands of plant sites reducing their injuries, 40, 50, 60, you know, sometimes 80, 90%. We had a few Cinderella stories with 100. But, um, but what the neuroscience really helped um, was to deal with the, the skeptics who, you know, they were still reluctant to spend, the, to spend the time that it takes to do this properly. Well, why, why were they reluctant? Well, I, I never really, you know, come out and ask people like, Hey, you know, why are you being so obstinate by the way? <laughs> um, but I've got a, as usual, I have a couple of theories, right? But, and you've also got to be, okay. If if everybody has a problem or whatever, it's not like we can't all have a bad attitude. Then we all have an average attitude, if you know what I mean. So yeah. um, this isn't just one or two uh, people we're talking about here. This is, you know, unfortunately, a, a great a, a great number, a high percentage of, uh, of people in operations and management. And my theory and I'm not trying to cut them too much slack, but you like the whole idea that these guys are all bad guys and they're evil is just not correct. Okay. I remember hearing this at the beginning of my career, that it was all about these evil supervisors and I'd go out there and I, you know, I'm looking for these guys whipping people like galley slaves and it, you know, a few pushy guys, like I've said before, but that was it. Right. And then you go look for the, the bad managers they're working for. And, you know, there's hardly any of them, maybe one or two. So again, like don't, the idea that it's a whole bunch of bad people, you just got to get over that paradigm and say, why? Well, supposing 
a lot of safety training you're forced to do by different governments all around the world isn't really doing much for you in terms of injury reduction. But you've got to do it in terms of legal liability. So there's, you know, you have to do, for instance, HASCOM or women's training in the United States or Canada. But you have to do that for a lot of people who really don't handle chemicals. Yeah. So, you know, the whole country, I remember in Canada, went through WIMIS, and I think the injury rate went up about 1.4% the next year. I mean, that was an awful lot of training, and it's pretty hard to show that anybody got a return on that investment. So a lot of it then became a, a perfunctionary exercise of making sure you had a check mark in the box if it was a legal compliance training thing. And there wasn't necessarily, you know, because you didn't get a big return on this investment, you know, how do we do it quicker? How do we do it cheaper? How do we do it easier? Because it really, it wasn't perceived as something that was going to really, like it was perceived as a cost of doing business. It wasn't perceived as something that could dramatically improve the whole business. So, you know, when you tell them that it takes 10 hours, their first question is, well, can we do it in five? If you showed them something that you did in five hours, they'd want it in two and a half and, and so on, right? So that no matter what you lead with, it will likely, there will be motivation to diminish it. In other words, there's a certain amount of this training. If I said I could teach you this in 50 seconds, you'd go, sure you can, but you wouldn't believe it. And even if I said yeah, I could teach you all this stuff in five minutes, you know, you might like to think so, but you're probably going, hey, you know, what? that's enough. You know, I don't think anybody changes their habits in five minutes. So let alone learn new skills, right? So you, people know that it will take a certain amount of time and effort. You have to recognize that there will always be this natural pullback because or pushback because their paradigm is why don't we do it quicker, cheaper, easier? Because none of it matters anyhow. And I, I mean, and I'm not arguing with it. Um, you know, that's that is what it is. But a lot of it is. They just need to understand that we have to train the subconscious, the subconscious mind. And the neuroscience really helped with that. So, so going back to the book and what you just mentioned there about the subconscious, you, you talk a lot about how we need to take the time and effort to train the subconscious. Why is the time and effort so important? I guess if you just think about it from a practical point of view, uh, you're driving 60 miles an hour, 100 kilometers an hour, you're traveling 27.7 meters a second or 88 feet a second. It's pretty clear then that you don't have a lot of time to react. So we need to be able to do a lot of this in real time because that's all you get in the real world. And that requires reflex speed. 
And if, if you think about it, you, you get a lot of that driving, right? Like you don't get time to think about, okay, I've got to move my foot from the accelerator to the brake and push hard. It all happens, thankfully, very, very quickly. But again, mm -hmm. only, only, only if you see the person walking out in front of you in the first place. Otherwise, your hands and your feet don't move. So like I say in the book, what's three times four? And before I can click the next PowerPoint slide that says 12, everybody's already answered it in their head. And then I show them a slide of a path that isn't that well-worn. And I say, now it's 13 times 14. And while they're kind of contemplating, okay, 13 times 13 is 169, 182. And I say, in that time, you know, you already hit somebody or, you know, ran somebody over, or you fell down, or, you know, or, or you had a head-on collision. I mean, things happen in the moment. So the, the conscious mind just isn't fast enough. But there's another problem as well, and that is your conscious mind is likely going to be thinking about something else other than the risk. For instance, if you're rushing, you'll be thinking about why you're rushing or what's likely going to happen if you're late. If you're frustrated, you're thinking about who or what is making you frustrated. And if you're tired, you're likely thinking not too much or about if you, when you're going to get some rest or maybe even get, maybe even get some sleep. And if you're complacent because there's nothing really you know, alerting you that there's any danger, your mind, if it's a familiar task, will wander without, without your permission, right? Yeah. So the, the subconscious mind is, is all we can really count on. You can't count on your, your conscious mind's great. I mean, I do this all the time in front of people, you know, 100,000 plus by now. Can you think of a time you've been hurt once in your life, not including sports, when you were thinking about what you were doing and the risk of what you were doing at the instant when you got hurt, other than if you're using an adjustable wrench and a nut and it slips, you might skin your knuckles. Or if the knife slips cutting towards yourself, you might cut yourself. I mean, other than those two things, can you think of a time and nobody can. So when you're thinking, mind on task is incredibly powerful. And the safety world knew this. They knew this was really, really important. You would see this even though they couldn't prove it. You would see like safety is a state of mind. Think safety. There was like 20 feet by 20 feet sign on the side of the Ford Automotive Building outside of Sydney, Australia that said, think safety. But the problem was it was a futile effort. <laughs> you can't yeah. stop your reticular activation system from filtering out what's familiar. It's just the way you're hardwired. Like I said, just the way you go to the swimming pool, you smell the chlorine. 15 minutes later, you don't smell the chlorine. You didn't make a decision not to smell the chlorine. And it won't matter how hard you try to smell the chlorine, you won't be able to do it. Now, when you think about risk, it's not too dissimilar, okay? You can't stop. You know, it's not like any of us were driving for a couple of years and we said, you know what? I got this. So now I can think about something else and drive on autopilot if I want. 
every one of us started driving on autopilot. None of us made a decision to do it at all, right? We didn't give our mind, we didn't give our minds permission to do it. So it's not a care, it's not a character flaw, but the thing that the, I think the thing that the safety community really, if you will, owes to the neuroscience is that they could stop this, if you will, futile attempt at preventing that first critical error. Like, you know, the, the gory videos, they're trying to scare the people into being safer. Okay, well, that only lasts for a little while. That doesn't last very long. I used to say this to people all the time. How many of you have actually driven by a fatal car accident on the side of the road? With your, you saw it with your own eyes. Quite often you saw the blood, you saw the stretchers, you saw, in my case, sometimes you saw the dejected look on the emergency workers because they weren't rushing, they weren't rushing, they were moving slow because there was no reason to move fast anymore. I mean, I saw it with my own eyes and in less than three minutes, everybody was driving back to normal again. And when I say normal, that's like NASCAR with no talent on I-64 going back <laughs> to Virginia Beach. Okay. So like, I mean, we all just saw this. I mean, we saw a transport truck parked over the driver's side of a convertible Camaro. There is no way that that guy lived. You know it. So it doesn't, that all that stuff doesn't work, Hunter. And so the safety community was trying for years and years to prevent the first critical error because they know how important your mind is. So, and I like what you're suggesting here. So what, what you say is that, you know, like the, the gross pictures of accidents, it doesn't provide enough voltage, but hearing enough good stories actually does because we can connect back and we we feel that emotion. Um, are, are there any stories that come to mind that really changed your your paradigm or made you think and actually helped you sort of get that or groove that um, neuropathway and help build that, that sort of repetition that is needed to build some of these habits around complacency. Well, it, it's, and obviously if, if what you hear does more than, okay, there's, you know, it's one thing to walk to the store and back and walk to the store and back and walk to the store and back enough times that you never have to think about where you're going when you walk to the store or when you drive, when you drive to the store, right? It, mm -hmm. It's another thing. If something happens to you on your way to the store that you'll never forget, because what it'll likely do is it'll motivate you to do things differently on a, on a deliberate, on a deliberate basis. Okay. So, um, I mean, I can remember the, probably the most emotional story I ever heard, um, was it a train, a trainer that I did. And I, you know, I told all the people, Hey, you should come back tomorrow with a happy story, or, you know, a sad story with some voltage and you should come back with sort of, if you will, kind of a, a happy story or, or a close call one that kind of, uh, you know, is, is a bit uplifting. And this lady, I believe her name was Tina, and she came in. She's a really bubbly, upbeat personality, kind of lights up the room with her smile. And she says, here's my happy story. And she tells us her happy story. And then she says, and here's my sad story. And she still had that same personality. And then she told us a story that was just unbelievable. Like she said, you know, I come from a fairly large family. I have 18 brothers and sisters. 
That's the largest family I've ever heard of in my life. <laughs> yeah. Wow. She said, and we all have lots of kids too. So there are almost hundreds of cousins at the family reunion. We have it at my uncle's farm every year. There are musicians in the family, so there's always great music. There's tons of great cooks, so there's incredible food. And the kids, as you can imagine, just have a riot. I've got my uh, two-and-a-half-year-old, three-year-old son in my arm, you know, kind of with me. He's, sometimes I carry him, sometimes he walks. Um, and I noticed that my uncle had now got automatic um, irrigation gate controls and the irrigation channels and that the, the water was all up. And I thought, hey, you know, with all the kids around, he should probably just let it all, you know, just let it all go. And, uh, you know, and when it's over, you know, let it come back, you know, come back. But I got busy when we got there saying hi to everybody and everything else. Um, like I said, I wasn't always holding on to my son's hand. And, you know, eventually he's off running around with his cousins and whatever. I'm saying hi to everybody. And after a while, I, you know, I go to try to find him and I can't find him right away. And then I start looking a little more, you know, a little, a little harder, a little more ardently. And, uh, Still can't find him. Pretty soon we shut the band down. Now everybody is looking for him. And they found him trapped underneath one of the irrigation gates. They didn't know how long he'd been underwater. He wasn't breathing. He wasn't conscious. Um, but his heart was beating. And they called 911. It was the first helicopter air back in the history of the state. And they saved his life. But he did have some brain damage and that was uh, some gross motor skill impairment and stuff like that. And then, and then she looks at me and she said, so, you know, who knows if, you know, we had had this stuff for the kids back then, maybe my boy would be alive now. So don't stop what you're doing because what you're doing for the kids is really good. And so, you know, that was 2003. And I think what I've invested millions of dollars and I don't know how many hundreds of hours in sort of education, kids programming, movies like the Boo Boo Bandits and everything since then, because, you know, to, especially the new stuff like with Breathless and the Toxic Twins, because, you know, yes, hard, sharp, hot, and slippery are the main things on a daily basis, and that's really efficient, but the drowning and the suffocation kill an awful lot of little kids, so, you know, it'd be good to get that out there as well, too, so. Yeah. You know, some things like that do a lot more than just, um, you know, neural pathway back and forth to the hardware store kind of thing. Wow. Yeah, you can really see how a story like that would burn even a little bit more than a neural pathway or, or bring back some memories every time you think about it. Well, yeah, but I mean, it's not, I mean, if you think about the, if you will, the funny story that I told you about, you know, uh, the Rick, the guy, you know, saw the saw the caution Cueto sign, looked back and then ran right into the open septic tank. I mean, I have <laughs> never been able to look at one of those caution Cueto signs again, the same way. Right. And every time I see one now, because of that story, I am a lot more mindful of that. It's going to be slippery, not losing my balance traction or grip. Right. So it, it works either way. It doesn't always have to be, it doesn't always have to be the, uh, the, the really sad stuff. 
Yeah, I, and I mean, that's kind of how you get people, as you mentioned, to work on the self-trigger technique, like a lot through storytelling and getting them to recognize the rushing frustration and fatigue. It's through these stories and hearing enough stories about rushing frustration and fatigue that they can start to recognize or have their RAS trigger on it. Um, how does the neuroscience relate to fighting complacency, though? Well, the neuroscience, like I said, really, really help people's understanding that complacency uh, leading to mind not on task wasn't a personality trait or, or a character fault, that, it, that it's just the way we're hardwired. But, I mean, I, I can remember hearing lots of, you know, lots of people saying, you know, how could somebody get complacent? with 13,800 volts. How could somebody get complacent with 20,000 pounds per square inch? I mean, um, like the, how could somebody get complacent working, and, you know, at, at over 100 meters in the air? And the answer is exactly the same way you got complacent driving 100 kilometers an hour or 60 kilometers an hour in your car or on your motorcycle. And it's obvious that at that speed on a motorcycle, it, it doesn't take too much to end your life. One tree would be enough, right? So it's not a character flaw. Like I said, that and, and ab abandoning the, the futility of trying to prevent that first error, right? You know, so I tell people, look, this, this whole thing was designed for your survival, but back then, you know, nobody could go 60 miles an hour unless you actually fell off a cliff, which, you know, <laughs> typically, you know, <laughs> there wasn't much of a second chance there. But it's the only way you could go that fast, right? I mean, yeah. so you can't really stop the first one. And then when they realize that, and then you say, but what happens now if your eyes also go off task? You know, you're not thinking about it. You're not going to see it. You're not going to see it coming. You're not going to get the benefit of your reflexes. How bad now could something very simple, like a fork truck going five or 10 miles an hour, 10 or 15 kilometers an hour, how bad could that be? And the answer is it could be fatal, right? Yeah. So um, you, you then get them to say, okay, so if you recognize that these defenseless moments are a priority, then the very first and the most efficient thing to do, and if you will, I mean, not trying to whatever, but you know, what, what is emphasized in the Safe Start course, the first, you know, unit number two, are the habits to improve eyes on task, you know getting a look at anything you're going to rest your hand on or stick your hand into, you know, looking before you, 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 you know, you're testing your footing and looking to see if there's anything that could cause you to lose your balance, traction or grip, you know, looking for line of fire potential, looking before you move your fans, feet, body, or car. If you get a re this will give you at least, even if your mind isn't on task, you'll at least get the reflex or the benefit of your reflexes, which for most of us 
has has been enough. I mean, I don't want to sound whatever. It's been enough so far that anybody listening to this is still alive. Yeah. And you're alive because you got the benefit of your reflexes. I know it because I like I've talked a lot, you know, 30 plus potentially fatal close calls. Most adults have had. And you start thinking about how many of those could, you know, if you didn't get the, you know, you didn't get a chance to hit the brake, you didn't get a chance to jerk the steering wheel. You know, it could have been really, really bad or it could have been game over. Right. So anyhow, that's, that's the first and the, and the most, and the most efficient thing. But going back to just how powerful your mind is when it comes, I mean, can't think of a time other than with the knife or with the adjustable wrench. That's pretty powerful. So the more we could get that working for us again, efficiently, the better. So we can't stop your mind from going away, but that doesn't mean we can't give people tools or, or help them bring their mind back to the moment more often especially if they're moving or things are moving around them, which, you know, means there's the potential for, for, for injury. So that's where the third critical error reduction technique comes in. When you look at others for the patterns that increase risk, the state error patterns that increase risk, whenever you see one, it makes you think about risk. And if you think about risk, you'll automatically think about where you are at the moment and are you at risk. But the key for this is that the risk you see has to be different or you have to recognize it. So if you're used to seeing everybody walking around, looking at their phone while they're walking and talking, then you're not likely going to recognize that as risk. If you work at a plant, where nobody walks and moves and talks when they're on the phone and you see somebody doing it, it stands out like a sore thumb, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, the example I use a lot of the times in the class is motorcycles riding the center line between transport trucks in, you know, in certain countries, there's nothing illegal about this. That doesn't mean there's no risk. I mean, anybody can see the risk, but if you grow up there, you don't see it anymore as being different. Whereas when I go there, I'm like, Oh my God, you gotta be kidding me. But if you get into the habit of looking for state terror risk patterns, and this is another thing I think that the neuroscientists really added in terms of value. And that is you can train your reticular activation system to look for things. So you can also just like safety professionals, have trained their reticular activation systems to look for hazards. And they wish, well, you know, why can't the supervisor see these things like I do? Well, you can do the same thing with training for state to air risk patterns, and then you will start to see more of them. And when you start to see more of them and you realize how many people aren't paying attention, again, it starts to help motivate you going, well, you know, maybe I should, right? Nobody else seems to be paying attention on this highway. Maybe I should. So, there's a lot of positive momentum that comes through that comes through for this. Um, but probably the, probably the most, I would say, well, I don't know. I could ask you, you're, you're pretty familiar with safe start. I, I would think of almost all at the beginning. Anyhow, a lot of the positive momentum comes from analyzing those close calls. 
Yeah, and that's exactly where I was about to go with this is the analyzing close calls technique. I remember when I first was learning Safe Start, this technique did a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of recognizing those patterns of states leading to errors. I mean, you'd stub your toe or, I mean, almost have a collision on the highway, that kind of thing. And it would make you think about, you know, was I rushing? Was I frustrated? You would definitely see the error, like eyes on task or line of fire. I remember, um, as previously mentioned, I used to competitively ski and line of fire was one I'd often see on the ski hill. Um, But how does the neuroscience fit into this technique of analyzing close calls? There's two parts to this technique. Um, It's kind of like self-triggering. The first part of self-triggering is to see if you can just, you know, slow down, calm down or get some rest. And then if you can't do that, keep your eyes and mind on task. Um, But the two parts to analyzing close calls and small errors, the first part is so that you can prevent the next one. Um, We all learn from the big errors and the big mistakes. But if we actually learn from all the little ones, we could have probably put the pattern together by ourselves. But we don't have enough big ones. So every time you bump, bang, scrape into something, you momentarily lose your balance. Uh, The first question is, just like what you were saying, was I rushing, frustrated, or tired, right? Um, Yeah. And if it was, you know, if it wasn't one of those three states that you didn't trigger on or self-trigger on quickly enough, then the next part is, okay, if it was mostly complacency leading to mind not on task, then it's probably, well, there's there's probably a safety-related habit where if you put a bit more effort into it, that would have that would have helped. Or if it was a bit more of just you know being in the moment, if you put more, you paid more attention to watching other people for state terrorist patterns versus sort of, you know, I don't want to say driving with blinders on, but not really making an active effort to look at what the other drivers are, are doing, which is pretty common when you're driving on autopilot, right? So the, the first thing is to prevent the next one. Was it a state that you didn't trigger on quickly enough? Or is it a habit that still needs more work? Or do I need to put more effort into watching other people for those state terrorist patterns? The second part of this technique is, is a bit more where the neuroscience comes in. And that's the part where you tackle the complacency head on, if you will. And you try to get everybody to think about how each of those little close calls, like you lost your balance, how it could have been worse. Like, what if you fell backwards and you hit your head on the curb there? Well, yeah, that could be pretty bad. Um, so when you start to do that, Again, that now starts your subconscious associating the critical errors with with danger, right? As opposed to not really paying attention to them. You kind of try to stick that landing a bit further, make that neural pathway go, if you will, all the all all the way, all the way around the bases. So when you hear other people tell stories and you hear them talk about how it could have been worse what the neuroscience proved i guess to everybody or brought to the table 
was that your imagination actually works just as well as if it's if it's the real thing in terms of the back and forth. I mean, you hear somebody talk about losing three or four fingers in their hand and, you know, in a punch press or something like that and, you know, how much it hurt and how they had to, you know, retrain and use their other hand and how embarrassing it is. And they're always trying to make it look like they got their hand in their pocket and stuff. You know what I mean? You don't have to experience that yourself. If you hear this story told by somebody well, it can have it can have a pretty high voltage effect on you too in terms of uh, not putting your hands where you shouldn't be putting your hands, right? Or having a good look before you stick your hands or rest your hands in, you know, stick your hands into something or rest your hand on something. So all all of them all of that was was really good and certainly you know you can say whatever you want but very few if you will operation managers if you said do you think you can use your your imagination to prevent injuries <laughs> i think they would look at you and say are you kidding me i mean you know hazards require engineering they require guarding they require protection process safety and so on you know the idea that you know you could actually get you know, if you will, some very significant improvement from people listening to other people tell stories. It's not like it's not fear mongering at all. Um, it's just building neural pathways. But again, you'll hear some of these guys, you know, what's the point of, you know, listening to these guys telling their old war stories and stuff like that? You know, what difference does it make that he, you know, crashed his motorcycle when he was 21? You know. And I'm like, what well, makes all the difference? It makes all the difference in the world in terms of these skills. But without without the neuroscience to back it up, um, there was always this, you know, I don't have to believe it if I don't want to. It doesn't matter how much empirical proof you've got. So I think I've said this before, um, but, you know, it didn't improve the efficacy of this. You know, didn't, like, if you will, it didn't improve the elevator. But it definitely limited some of the exits that people could take. Okay, so my last question then for you is something that you talk about in the book, which is what about the rushing and frustration overriding good habits? Where does that come in? The, the whole thing about the you know, behavior-based safety was that we were going to try to get you to do things like stand body position out of the line of fire until you know you did that on a on a habitual basis without thinking about it automatically and that would help to compensate for complacency leading to mind not on task when i introduced safe start the whole concept of self-triggering was that we all knew that with enough rushing or frustration you would override those good habits but if somebody had have said to me explain to me what the chemicals are and what part of your brain gets hijacked, and what part of your brain eventually ends up getting used when you're in a rushing frustration state. I would not have known that until, of course, all the neuroscience stuff. So, um, you know, I wouldn't have known all the chemicals, the adenosine, the, the cortisol, and hijacking the amygdala, and getting down to the subcortex, all of that sort of, like, we knew the problem, but we couldn't explain it in technical terms. But what it also then did 
is it then definitively outlined the importance of teaching good baseline habits to the kids. Now, here's another thing that, again, empirically, anybody who's ever played a sport learned, like learn how to hold the racket the right way from the very beginning, get lessons, learn how to ski the right way, learn how to swing the golf club the right way, so that your baseline habits are good baseline habits. Yeah. And that way, when you're in a rush, you'll shoot the jump shot the same way. So what it also did was it also now lent to the technical importance of teaching these concepts to the kids, you know, through things like the boo-boo bandits and the take-home stuff with SafeStar. In other words, this isn't just because you care about your kids and you know saying try to be more careful next time really doesn't do any good. This is also now giving you as a parent uh, a little more motivation to say, no, if I can teach them to look before they move now, then when they're older, even if they're in a rush or they're frustrated, they're still going to look first. Well, so Larry, you just put out a, a number of new Boo Boo Bandits episodes. Um, for those interested in some resources for your kids, check out booboobandits.com. We have a couple coloring books there that help teach your kids essentially these habits we're talking about and teaching them about um, the, the new bandits, Mr. Complacency, Mrs. Fast, Mrs. Tired, and Maddie or um, frustration. So they'll also learn about Breathless and the Toxic Twins in those three new episodes as well as the original one. So that's on booboobandits.com. And Larry, I think that wraps up today's episode. So we'll be back in just one month talking about the next chapter. Well, and I don't know, I, I don't know, I mean, this is obviously a little weak, but I would like to, if you will, close out with a thank you to the, the neuroscientists who sort of, if you will, um, directly or, or maybe, you know, more indirectly um, contributed to, uh, to the general knowledge, especially, especially, I would say the most important thing about the, that the complacency isn't a character flaw. It's just the way we're hardwired. Your mind is incredibly powerful, yes, but you can't stop that first one. And so, you know, quit, Quit with the 20-foot signs that say think safety because it's just really a waste of paint. But that doesn't mean that you can't give people tools and techniques to help bring that mind back on task because it is, it, is, it is super powerful. But it isn't a character flaw. So, you know, it at least stopped everybody from finally, I think, going down the wrong road when it, uh, when it came to blaming people for becoming complacent. So that, that was a huge plus. So thank you to whoever you were out there. And, and thanks. And thanks, Hunter. And uh, we'll see you all next month. Yeah. Thanks again, Larry. Thanks to you too. Thanks again for listening to the Defenseless Moments podcast. We really appreciate your support. Now remember, there's a link to purchase the book in the episode notes, as well as a link to 
the Paradigm Ship landing page where you can actually read each of the chapters in article format. And we've also included a link to boobabandits.com, which we mentioned in this episode, where you can get access to free children's movies, coloring books, and other resources that will help teach your kids about the importance of eyes and mind on task. We're incredibly grateful for the support from our listeners, and if you've been liking the show, feel free to leave us a review on your favorite podcasting app. Now, as always, thank you so much for listening, and stay safe.